Welcome to the podcast, Eavesdropping on Arthurians, a podcast that records some of the world's top Arthurians chatting about Arthurian texts. Imagine you're at an Arthurian conference, and after a day of listening to papers on all things Arthurian, you've all gone to the pub. So, order a pint of ale, pull up a stool, and settle in to listen to two scholars talk about their favorite books. Continuing a long-term conversation I've been having with Dr. Kevin Wetter. Dr. Wetter is a professor of medieval English at Acadia University and co-editor of the journal Arthurian Literature. He has published widely on Arthurian matters, both as a solo author and with Thomas Crofts on Mallory and the Alliterative Mort and with Fiona Tolhurst on all three English morts. Welcome, Kevin. It's, It's a pleasure. I, we aren't sharing a pint like we usually do, but we can have virtual pints with us. Yeah, that works. Thanks. So can you start by putting things in context for us? Um, we're talking today about two different texts, both confusingly called the same name, the Mort d'Arthur, <laughs> yeah. but for scholarly purposes, we call them the alliterative Mort d'Arthur and the stanzaic Mort d'Arthur. I guess they're both Mart, Mort Arthur, not Mort d'Arthur, like Mallory, right? They, they are, yeah. And so that adds to the confusion as well, right? That we've got a third sort of English Mort with the D in there, but these two <laughs> aren't. And unusually for, for Middle English works uh, or medieval works, they're both titled in their manuscript. And so the The alliterative poem has a clear title of Mort Arthur with an E on the end of Arthur and the stanzaic one has a clear title of Le Mort Arthur. But you're right, they're so confusing that the the scholarly shorthand for obvious reasons is to distinguish them on the basis of their verse form. So we have the alliterative Mort, the Mort Arthur, and the stanzaic Mort, the Le Le Mort Arthur. And then the mistake that I almost made there of both of which are used later by Mallory and his Mort D'Arthur. So so these are both pre-Mallory. Could you say a bit about, I mean, I know they're no, both anonymous, but what do we yeah. know about the, the creators and the time and so on? Time, we know more about the verse form and, and the time uh, and, and the dialect than we do about the authors. Uh, again, so, you know, we were just saying that a lot of medieval texts are untitled in their manuscript form. If they ever had a title, we, it hasn't survived. So both of these poems, we don't know uh, who wrote them, but they do have some similarities and they do have enough features that we can figure out where they're from. They're both from the Midlands in terms of dialect. Um, some critics argue that the, the alliterative mort is a little bit more northerly and the stanzaic one is perhaps a bit more... Midlands, maybe east or west, but they both seem to be roughly uh, northern Midlands. Um, they both survive in single manuscript. We don't know who wrote the Alliterative Mort. We don't know who wrote Le Mort Arthur. Um, they're comparable in terms of their length. They're comparable in terms of the dialect that they come from, but the Alliterative Mort seems to have a different dialect just because of that alliteration. They're Again, they're both sort of circa 1400. Um, the alliterative more, I think, is maybe slightly earlier, not that the stanzaic poet seems to have read it. Um, <laughs> dates have been given in the alliterative more anywhere from about the 1360s to around 1405. Uh, as you know, the, the most common date given for the, for the alliterative poem is 1399 to 1402. The stanzaic more, it's a bit more firm. The usual date given there is circa 1400. Again, some people say a little bit earlier. 
Some people say a little bit later, but around 1400 seems to be our best bet for that one. Let's talk about the verse form. So let's start with the alliteration, alliterative poetry, because I think that would be the less familiar poetic form to most people. Um, how does alliterative poetry work? Um, and what is the main structure of alliterative poetry? The big difference for, for those of our audience, I guess, <laughs> uh, who, don't, who, who are unfamiliar with it, is, is that unlike... Uh, modern, or unlike the poetry that they think of from the sort of classic English literature corpus, uh, it's not usually carried by rhyme, right? The, the verse uh, or the meter is carried by alliteration, which is the repetition of sounds between the first half of the line and the second half of the line. And, and what I mean there is that the, the sort of classic account of alliteration, both in Old English and Middle English, is that it's sort of split into two half lines of roughly equal length and there are a couple of stresses in the first half line and a couple of stresses in the second half line but that those stresses carry the alliteration the repetition of a common sound um, one of the big differences though for the middle english uh, version is is that it doesn't middle english alliterative poetry seems to be a bit more flexible than its old english uh, counterpart or or predecessor it, alliterative Poetry seems quite specialized. It certainly is in its emphasis, as you said, on sound, and and it's it's quite an imagistic form. It's quite good, as I mean, as is literature as a whole. But but in, in the hands of a of a skilled poet, the alliteration can really help to create images, not just visual, but but verbal. I think you and I both agree that one of the one of the best things about that little book of Tolkien's, the posthumous book on the fall of Arthur poem, isn't actually. The Arthurian poem is that little essay at the back of the book uh, of Tolkien's notes about alliteration, right? How alliterative poetry can really sort of hammer home certain visual images and sounds that help to carry the poetry, right? So it's often used for martial poetry. So the alliterative Arthur or the wars of Alexander or the destruction of Troy. But, but like any kind of poetry, uh, we have alliterative poems that were used for uh, for debate, for for satire, uh, for dream vision. So it seems to have been quite a um, wide-ranging form uh, in the Middle Ages, even if it's less well-known today. Yeah, and I think Tolkien in that essay talked about the sound of the battle, that, that it sounds like smiths hammering and clanging and so on, but that sound would come through, through the harsh consonants, the repeated consonants of alliteration. Yes, um, yeah. And so that's one reason that alliterative poetry is really effective for battle scenes. Although I think in other places, it's equally effective for other types of, of content. I, I agree. I agree completely. Right. And the battle scenes are sort of often said, uh, even Chaucer, we sometimes, the critics sometimes say, well, he, he it's say in the Knight's Tale, he flips to alliteration in some of the battle scenes, but you're right. It works really well, regardless of what it is, which is why, you know, there isn't a lot of, there aren't a lot of battle scenes in Pearl or Pierce Plowman, but both of those poets use both of those poems. Poets use alliteration, so it's quite it's quite it's much more versatile than its stereotypical uh, sort of claims to fame would let on. Um, but you're right; it allows for a lot of variation. Hence, especially in the alliterative board or Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, where you've got all those different words for knight or person or man or different words for for fighting 
right? It does seem to have allowed them, and that's especially true in the alliterative mort, where the the poet really seems to have uh, gone out of almost certainly his way to to bring in so many of these different words above and beyond what one would expect for a simply to to capture the sound that, that is necessary for alliteration. Right. That there's actually a virtuoso quality in being able to use as many synonyms as you can. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And so the stanzaic form will be more familiar, um, but that's more based on rhyme and a steadier, what we tend to think of as a rhythmic pattern rather than a stress-based pattern. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Um, although um, the, the Stanzaic poet also does sneak in some alliteration, kind of tying in what we were talking about. Like, yeah, technically, uh, the Stanzaic poem is written in uh, eight-line stanzas, which have a sort of pretty consistent four-stress pattern. But technically, yeah, eight-line stanzas uh, rhyming in, in four beats, um, and uh, it's... Yeah, as you say, much more traditional in its in its form, but not in a hack minstrel way, which is what some earlier critics argued. Sorry, uh, it also uses a lot of uh, repetition, but again, not necessarily in a negative way. So, not all stanzas in the poem do this, but in places again where the poet wants to emphasize certain ideas, whether they're thematic or whether they're about character, or even about plot. The poet will use concatenation to sort of repeat one or two words from the end of one stanza at the beginning of the next stanza, which is quite an effective way to, to get your point across, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, so getting back to the alliteration before we go on to talk about yeah, yeah. the content of each poem, do you have a favorite line or can you read some of the alliteration just to make <laughs> give it a sense? Um, my, uh, my velar fricative is not what it should be. So my pronunciation is not great, but I do, there's a great, we were just talking a little bit about uh, repetition, either in alliterative or uh, rhythmic poetry, right? And how it can help to emphasize characters and, and themes. And, and there, there, there is a really great line uh, in the alliterative more. It's in, it's in the climax and the final battle uh, where Arthur has, has sort of cornered Mordred on the battlefield uh, and, there's all sorts of things that are going on there, but it, we were talking a minute ago about this possibly traditional, sometimes even formulaic nature of alliterative poetry, but which is true, it is those things, but in the hands of a really good poet, and I should just mention the, the alliterative poet seems to have gone out of his way as a kind of tour de force, here's all the words and the skill that I've got at my command. Uh, so even using alliteration, he manages to characterize Mordred and make it clear that Mordred is the bad guy, which not everyone agrees with in this poem. Um, and, and he does that just with sort of one line around line um, 4,174. Sir Mordred the Malabranch with his Mitcha people, he had hidden behind within these halted eaves with Hull battle on Heath, harm is the more. So Mordred seems to have basically hidden. He's put himself not only in the back of his battle, contrary to Arthur, but he also at one point changes his armor so he can't be found. He's put on a different uh, regalia insignia. And again, the poet comes in. You would expect Arthur to, to badmouth uh, Mordred, but the poet himself is the one who says, Mordred the Malbranch, he calls him 
to encounter with the king, he casts him so and so Mordred's trying to avoid fighting and he's changed his armor in case he does. And he says, but the churlish chicken had changed his arms, which is just <laughs> great, right? That Mordred's this coward who has hidden and changed his armor so that Arthur won't be able to recognize him and therefore smite him. So uh, that's, I think, the Mordred the Malbranch and then a few lines later, the churlish chicken. Those are, that's definitely my favorite line or, or lines uh, in that poem. Although there are many great lines in the poem. So. Yeah, well, the ch 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 sound is almost like a bird's cry or a chicken's squawk or something. Like I, I never thought of that. That's brilliant. Yeah, exactly. Right in terms of of that sort of sense of imagery, it does kind of create it. It's not even a good uh, bird analogy, right? It makes him. A, it's not like he's compared to an eagle or a bird of prey. But I said this little chicken cheeping around in the yard. Yeah, yeah, the sound carries the meaning. Brilliant. Um, okay, so let's let's get into the the content. You talked a little bit about the last battle between Mordred and and Arthur, but there's also a really interesting part. Um, but Gawain dies now. Gawain is you know more renowned, I guess, in the English tradition than in yeah. the French tradition, right? The French people or tradition seems to prefer Lancelot, but Gawain um, is one of the main characters, if not the main character of the English tradition. Absolutely, yeah. The alliteration is often in this part carries on for several lines. So you don't have just one line of alliteration. Mordred, but the shalk for the shaft, he shoutness a little. He shared him of the short ribs, a shaft moaned large. The shaft shouldered and shot in the sheer berin, that the shadden blood over his shank renes and showed his... So you've got these, and that goes on for a, like more lines so we've got many many lines yeah 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 and so this this virtuoso quality of the alliteration i don't know i think it ties in with the 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 importance of this part i i think it does i i mean the this poet again it's a sign of of skill this poet will do that a lot we were talking a, a few minutes ago about how the 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 usual alliterative uh emphasis is is across one line right with the yeah but you're right. It does happen elsewhere in the in the poem. I think it, it's really important, and it and it helps to emphasize, as you said, uh, Gawain's um, position uh, in English Arthurian poetry as much uh, greater or 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 more of a favorite character than Lancelot. But also in this poem, where probably uh, Gawain together with Arthur is is the main hero, almost kind of split between them equally, perhaps. Uh, and, and that right. all of that alliteration, they sit not only across one line, but from one line to the next line, to sometimes running in, in blocks of four, but even and there's one case, six or eight lines long, where the alliteration extends through a number, through the passage, as well as across each line. And I, in each case, I think that kind of effect is to emphasize how good uh, in this case, how good Gowan is in other cases is to emphasize sorrow or something like that, right? But yeah, absolutely. I think even the poet also does it um, with sort of one-offs. So Gowan in this poem is often called Gowan the Good or uh, because it's alliterative, sometimes Gawain is given the name Wowain in this poem, uh, right? So, but you get lines like Wowain the Worthy or Gowan the Good. Uh, or Arthur is described repeatedly throughout the poem as conqueror kid, right? The good conqueror, the noble conqueror, the heroic conqueror. Uh, I think those 
epithets in microcosm and then this scene uh, of the fight uh, and the between Gowan and Mordred and Gowan's death that you were just reading it is a kind of more macrocosmic level because there's so much more going on. But I think all of those things show the poet's, uh, not only the poet's skill, but the ways in which the poet is trying to characterize Gowan uh, as sort of more heroic and more sympathetic than Mordred. And so we get that effect there. As you said, the, the effect of the, of the blow of the spear striking against his ribs, right, with all those S sounds. Uh, and we do get that sort of image, not only as you said, of sort of, or you said, Tolkien said about, about the sort of hammering of the forge effect of battle, but we get an idea because ultimately in this battle, remember Gowan slips in the grass, he goes in to stab Mordred and he slips in the blood in the grass. And that's what allows Mordred and freedom. And you almost get a, it's almost like the poet is building towards that slipping, um, the, the falling with this emphasis on all the S words in this passage, right? Is that sort of some of the stuff that you were thinking about? Yeah, I never, I never thought of that, that, but that is the sound of someone slipping, right? Shh, shh, yeah, shh. yeah. Um, That's interesting. It, That's fascinating. That just came to me now. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> but I think it does, because it's in that same block of lines, right, that we get the yeah. shh, 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 and then um, with the trenchant, Kneef the traitor, him hits us a few lines later, right? So this is the moment at which... Uh, Gowan tries to kill Arthur or Mordred, sorry, and, and then fails, right? Yeah, um, and the sudden, in, like the sudden sharp T sounds yes. are a big contrast with the kind of softer SH sounds. Absolutely. Um, so I, one of the things that the other poet does is, is make Arthur also quite heroic in contrast, say, to some of the French romances, but going to here and in and, and earlier passages in the poem and then we expect this in the hands of a good poet anyway, but the formulaic nature of alliterative poetry, the alliterative poet is able actually to use the formula to his advantage and do it in such a way as to make it clear whose side he's on. Mordred is the mild branch or the churlish chicken, right? And here we're meant, oh, wait a minute, it's, we're, I want to be, I want, I don't want Gowan to die. And then when he does, it's a, it's, it's quite a shock, right? So. Yeah. And after he dies, there are a few lines of G alliteration. And, and I don't think that can be an accident because, you know, that's just driving home the, the, that Gawain, you know, that, that sound kind of carries on after the character is gone. Absolutely. No, I think you did right. That that's, again, it's part of emphasizing, wait, this is who, you know, I want you to remember not Mordred now, but we're supposed to lament Gowan's passing, right? That, um, as you say, uh, it's a Gowan is Gona, uh, and from from Goer to Guernsey, Glamortis and Gauls, all of that G sound. Yeah, so well, wait a minute, the main G in the poem is clearly uh, Gawain, so. Yeah, yeah, and all over, all the Gs across Europe are joining in <laughs> lament yeah, or something. To, to, to lament, uh, yeah. right? Which is, which is kind of neat because uh, then, paves the way perhaps for for Mordred's own lament of, of Gowan later on, which is quite unusual, right? Yeah, can we talk about that? Because I was going to say that the poet does such an effective job of painting Mordred as the bad guy, but then I don't know of any other like medieval tradition where Mordred expresses regret. To, I, I, to the best of my knowledge, uh, it's unique in this passage, right? So having Mordred, having been the bad guy, probably throughout the poem, right? So as you know, critics are split on whether 
uh, Mordred is is the villain from the beginning of the poem when he says to Arthur, no, no, don't leave me as regent. I want to go with you and fight. Or whether he's really plotting all along. And it's Mordred does make this spectacular and unique lament over Gowan's body, having just killed him largely through luck. I mean, he was trying to kill him, right? But we just talked about that scene where it's because yeah. Gowan slipped. So having killed Gowan partly through luck, uh, then Mordred sort of stops and makes this huge, long lament over uh, Gowan's body, which is quite a beautiful passage in and of itself. And I think that you're right, the uniqueness of that lament almost makes Mordred look, it, it certainly in the moment makes him less of the bad guy. And maybe because of the uniqueness of that, some critics have gone so far as actually to suggest that that uh, it's not really Mordred's fault that he's the bad guy, that Arthur kind of pushed him into it by leaving him as regent of hmm. England, but being made king in the king's absence is hardly a punishment. Right? No, so, and I, and same with, I mean, it's quite clear that Gawain could have killed Mordred, or maybe it, if the possibility at least is there, except for this bad luck. It's not like Mordred killed him through superior fighting ability. That's it, yeah. So, um, but I think that it's it's a testament, I'm assuming, I should ask, because I, I, like you, I'm, I'm friends with some of the people who argue that, that not only is Mordred sympathetic in the poem, but that he's almost would make a better candidate for King than Arthur Gowan. I should ask one or two of them if they're actually, uh, I'll have to do this in the pub, but uh, ask them if they're actually working backward from this speech or not. Cause it's only at this moment that you think, Oh wait, maybe Mordred's not quite as bad as I, you know, thought he was up until that moment. But then you go to that scene that, that you had me read where he's the malbranch and the churlish chicken. You go, no, 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 he's clearly the bad guy, right? Well, I wonder if it's coming because most, we assume, like we we always assume that medieval texts, there's good guys and bad guys and, and they're kind of like, we go to them with this fairy tale almost idea. And we don't expect complexity the way we would expect in a modern novel. And yet a lot of the characters are quite complex. And they have differences and layers and, and regrets and, and so on. And so I wonder if it's our viewpoint that makes this complexity that we're seeing here in Mordred um, a problem. Whereas he is a bad guy. It's just that he's a complex bad guy. Right. And he's, I don't know, but bad guys maybe aren't really sympathetic in the medieval tradition. And this seems to be a unique case where he's more, sympathetic at least for a moment he absolutely yeah no i think you're you're quite right right there are things like as, as you just said they're com- not just a sort of nascent characterization but some complexity of character that we get again not in all medieval storytellers but the certainly Chaucer's who's doing it Christian de Troyes is doing it and i think the alert to point here yeah as you said there's a there's a, a a complex portrait of mordred and he's aware that you know he's for again for the benefit of our audience who who don't know all the details it's his own brother or half brother whom he's just killed uh and so there and 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 the character gowan that the poet has set up throughout the narrative as second only to arthur we're supposed to to uh lament gawain's loss and it makes the lament all the more emphatic and effective that it comes from mordred but as you say it all the flip side of that is that it really gives us uh, an insight into the complex nature of Mordred's character. Yeah. Not enough, I think, to make him 
sort of even remotely heroic, but yeah. but that it shows that, as I said, you can be the villain and still have uh, a sense of remorse, still have a sense of the consequences of your actions, which I think is one of the things that this poem actually is doing. I think that the alert poet is partly playing not just with the heroic tradition, but with ideas of tragedy, which again, many medieval poets apparently aren't supposed to know about, but I think that this poet clearly does have a sense of that. Right? Oh yeah. Well, and it also then works to emphasize Gawain's goodness because not only does the narrator use that epithet Gawain the good and, and we kind of trust the narrator, but to hear it in the, you know, in the mouth of a, the man who just killed him, he says, this was Gawain the good, the gladdest of other and the graciousest gom that's a man the great the most gracious man that under god lived and so that kind of stands as a testament to gawain but it, it also i think really um, makes the whole emotions of this scene much more complex uh, yeah i totally agree i think it, it makes it even more the 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 praise and the lament for gowan are all the more effective and the emotions that are generated from by being created by the character who's just just killed him. caused power to cease to exist, right? He's so yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that word "gom" that you use, yeah, that's one of those examples of all the different uh, kind of using words that even at the time, as far as we can tell, may have been archaic, right? For the for the benefit of carrying over the alliteration uh, within different lines. Um, yeah, interesting. So moving to the stanzaic morse, then, yeah. I mean, the titles are virtually identical, but the feeling of the poem is so different. Yes, yes, indeed, and indeed. So the alliterative morse tends to be more epic and more concerned about battles. And what things does the stanzaic morse, what is more emphasized in that story? Uh, you're right. They're, despite the similarity of their titles, they, they really come from two and, and actually not just the titles but the cast of characters right and it's the also plot. The, i mean they both tell the, the same plot they all tell the downfall of arthur's kingdom as the title the more arthur uh, makes it's makes clear a bit of a spoiler for the ending <laughs> definitely right for uh maybe that's why medieval uh storytellers didn't use titles most often because it didn't it wouldn't allow them to give the game away right but so you know what's going to happen in both of these stories before you even start reading them uh, but yeah, they come at the two poets uh, come at their tradition quite differently. So the the alliterative poet is coming at it more from the the Galfredian or the chronicle tradition, uh, where the stanzaic poet, in contrast, uh, is the first poet in English or the first storyteller in English, not even poet, to give us the uh, love story between Lancelot and Guinevere. Hmm. And so for the stanzaic poet, it, the downfall of Arthur's kingdom is really the the famous love story of Lancelot and Guinevere and the consequences that that love has once it becomes well known. Whereas in the Allaire de Mort, as we just looked at, uh, the downfall of the kingdom is, is really because of Mordred's revolt uh, caused perhaps, depending on where one stands, uh, also with uh, Arthur being away on the continent uh, to fighting Rome or becoming greedy, uh, as many critics argue, and, and not coming back. Right, So two totally different reasons for the for the death of Arthur and the destruction of his kingdom. So the, the Stanzaic uh, poet is the first English storyteller to give us the Lancelot Guinevere affair. Right, which was central to the French tradition, but only, but not really 
before entered into the English tradition. Well, at all, right? Uh, and so uh, the, the alliterative poet seems to have known the French tradition. Lancelot shows up in the poem, but not to any great extent, whereas the Stanzaic poet, uh, poet uh, in his story, Lancelot is so prominent that some critics argue that the story is really about Lancelot, not about Arthur, despite its title, right? right? So, so uh, there's definitely a love plot, which I don't think comes into the alliterative, unless I totally missed it. No, no, not at all. <laughs> the closest we get is that affair between Mordred and Guinevere, and even then it's sort of, is that, it's certainly not a, well, we certainly, we don't get enough details to know if it's a, this deeply moving love story that, that we do get between Lancelot and Guinevere, right? In the Spenzaic, the love story goes, I mean, it's quite complex. It's quite complex, and, and, and uh, it, the poet gives it the end of the love affair, but it's clear from the carrot from Lancelot and Guinevere's first uh, interaction, or uh, that that they have been in love. So the the, the Stanzaic poet begins by turning the Grail quest not into this sort of judgmental account of Arthur's kingdom, but says they all came back to the Grail quest. Everything was great. They achieved the Grail, and so now what are we going to do? Oh, let's have a let's have a tournament. And Lancelot immediately says, "Oh, I can't go to that," and he doesn't go into any details. But then the poet adds because he can then go and see uh, Gaynor, the Guinevere character in the poem. Right. And so, so yeah, the, the love story uh, drives this poem in, in, a, in a pretty central fashion, really. Well, and even in the end, they mention Arthur's death, but they, he's actually third, and then they say Lancelot, and then Gaynor. And then Gaynor. The, like, kind of in, as they're going out. So it's bookended by the, the Lancelot and Gaynor, or Gaynor, rather than Arthur. Yeah, absolutely. I, and so you can see that's one reason why maybe some critics argue that, that Lancelot is more central to the story than is Arthur, right? One of the things that Fiona Tolhurst and I have been trying to argue is that not only is this a better poem than a lot of critics have, have given it credit for, but that Arthur is sort of more central and a better king than he is sometimes said to be. But uh, Gaynor is also crucial. And so the opening tournament in the Stanzaic Mort that Lancelot initially absents himself from is actually uh, Guinevere's idea in the poem, which is a nice uh, touch. And then, as you said, it ends not with Arthur's funeral, not with Lancelot's funeral, but with, uh, but with, or rather with her name. So the, the, the poem, the Stanzaic poem gives us quite a prominent portrait of Gaynor. And I think one that actually highlights her not just her love with Lancelot, but also her political savvy and astuteness. She's the one who says to Arthur, look, um, if you all just lie around and don't do anything, people are going to say that your court's lost its sense of honor and worship, so you better have this tournament to do it. And he goes, right. oh, yeah. So we see her making suggestions that Arthur agrees are good ideas, and, and away they go. Right? So. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. And why do you think Arthur is a better than the general uh well, one of the things the the clearest example perhaps is where uh, this poem. i suppose again we should probably say uh this poem is is based on not just the french tradition but uh another confusingly mort titled uh story the the vulgate cycle or the lancelot grail cycles uh final installment the the death of king arthur right and in that, or the Mort Le Royer too, uh, and in that narrative, uh, when 
it gets to the final battle between Arthur and Mordred, which in this story is caused by the publication of the Lancelot Guinevere affair. Uh, right. Remember in, in the French, Gowan or his ghost keeps saying, Arthur, don't go and fight Mordred. Don't go and fight Mordred. Something bad will happen. And Arthur totally ignores him. Uh, remember in the, in the Stanzaic poet, uh, in the Stanzaic poem, the poet uh, changes that scene quite dramatically and, and Gowan appears to Arthur and says, don't go. And Arthur tries. So here we see him trying to do the right thing. And, and again, we were talking earlier about the, the role of fortune or fate or, or chance, good or bad, in the Illyrda poem. Again, Arthur tries to do the right thing in the Stanzaic poet, in the Stanzaic poem, but it, it doesn't work. But we see him trying to do it. And I think that's sort of one small example of how he's trying to, to be a better king here. He's not just following his own personal desire, because he obviously does want to fight Mordred in this story, because it's Mordred together with Agravain who have denounced Lancelot and Guinevere and caused partly the destruction of the kingdom. It's also, of course, Lancelot and Guinevere's fault. But we see Arthur, uh, I think we see in the Stanzaic poem, the seeds of what Mallory emphasizes, which is that part of the complexity of the situation is that Lancelot and Guinevere love one another, but they also love Arthur, but Arthur also loves both of them. And the Stanzaic yeah. poet has bits and pieces of that in there. So he doesn't just want to immediately um, denounce Guinevere. He doesn't want to immediately denounce Lancelot. And although his personal desire is to attack Mordred, he tries to do the right thing for the benefit of the kingdom. doesn't work, but he does try. Yeah. Uh, and again, when, when Lancelot and Guinevere first denounced um, Arthur in the Stanzaic poem calls a council and he says, okay, what should we do? And it's there that they decide that they have to put the, not only try the queen, but convict her being guilty and burn her to death, which Lancelot comes in and rescues her, of course. But uh, we see Arthur going through quite explicitly following justice in the, in the English poem, whereas that's not really the case in the, in the French version. Right. And so it's like Arthur is following all the rules and conventions that nobody can accuse him of playing favorites or, or losing his temper or anything like that. Very much so, yeah. One of the things that the Stanzaic poet does to the Lancelot Guinevere story that Mallory picks up on and, and then emphasizes a bit more is the Stanzaic poet adds that final meeting between Lancelot and Guinevere in the nunnery when Lancelot's looking around to try and find the queen and comes upon her, right? And now that everything's gone to rack and ruin, he says, well, listen, I couldn't do this before because, you know, Arthur was around. But now that Arthur's dead, you could kiss me and we could go and live together. And in both in the poem and in Mallory, whatever says no, right? And I think in both cases, it adds to the, to the, to the sympathetic portrait of the lovers by both the Stanzaic poet and then by Mallory. And I think the same is true here. One, even though the Stanzaic poet adds that uh, final, quite powerful meeting between Lancelot and, and Gaynor, um, and Mallory includes it. The Stanzaic poet, as you said, does admit that they're in bed, whereas Mallory doesn't want to admit if Lancelot and Guinevere are in bed. And I, I, I think, personally, it's because it, it adds to the complexity of the situation, and, and it shows that it's not as simple as, as Agravain and Mordred want to make out yeah, and and it's the, a whole bunch of things come together. It's Gawain's 
kinship loyalty and Mordred and Agarvain's petty jealousy of Lancelot and it's the revelation of Lancelot and Guinevere and you know Arthur basically says I couldn't care less if they were sleeping together but don't tell anyone you know? <laughs> and and he's upset with Lancelot not because he's sleeping with his his queen but because he kills all his knights and and so it's very complex in Mallory yeah yeah abso absolutely so and I, I I think Mallory picked up the seeds from that in the in the stanza poem but but he goes much, much further that partly, you know, he's got much more space, right? But I think right. he does, uh, the Stanzaic poem has a lot of, of merit, but Mallory builds upon it for some of these great scenes. That but I think also like the reason for this complexity is not, is because he's not just drawing on the Stanzaic, he's drawing on the alliterative as well in this bigger picture thing where it's Mordred's fault and Gawain, you know, and, and so that adds to the complexity in a way that, you don't find in just the stanza. I, I agree. Uh, and so I, I said that the most obvious place where Mallory follows the alert of Mort is in Tale 2, but you and I were talking earlier about that great lament for, for the dead Gawain that Mordred gives in the alert of Mort. I think that actually Mallory takes that lament and reworks it as he often does. He takes material from the sources that, that is about Gawain and he gives it to Lancelot in, in the Mort Arthur. So the lament, the the threnody or the lament that Ector makes for Lancelot's body, just as they're about to bury him. Remember, Ector rides in at the last minute, makes this long lament about Lancelot being the the both the gentlest knight and the kindest knight that ever struck with sword. Right, he's the best of lovers, but the most fierce fighter. So the whole speech is filled with these complexities that we've just talked about. But I think the the inspiration for that lament for the dead knight, whom everyone should lament his passing is actually Mordred's speech about Gowan. Um, Interesting. Well, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, it's been good fun. Yeah, the, uh, it's too bad we couldn't actually do it in a pub, but it was really good. Thanks very much. So, Well, we shall have to continue this over a pint sometime. <laughs> For sure. All right. You've been listening to Eavesdropping on Arthurians with Kathy Clausey. Join me next time to eavesdrop on another chat about a different but equally fascinating story about Arthur. Our music is Mordred's Lullaby by Heather Dale. You can download it for free from heatherdale.com.